Matthew chapter 28. This is the second week of our core commitment series, just a mini-series that we're going to do. And uh, talking about the things that are, you know, I said it last week that there is certainly more to the Christian life than these commitments, but there certainly isn't less. And today we're looking at the second one of those, which is our mission. Uh, before I became a pastor, um, I, I managed the smoothie place. I've mentioned that to you guys. But before that, when I was in seminary, um, I was a I was a salesman, and I worked for, I kind of still am a salesman, I'm just telling the good news, y'all. Uh, I was a salesman at Sprint, uh, the cell phone company, and I was uh, not great at that job when I started out. I'd never been in sales before, had never done sales. The true, true story is, I was, uh, had an interview, and I set the interview up with the guy, and um, I showed up a day early. Michael Scott from the office did this, and he didn't get the job. I still got the job. I showed up a day early for the interview, and I still got the job. That's how solid I was in the interview, not in sales. But I became a salesman. Um, largely, it was based on commission. I had a little salary, but it was based largely on commission, which meant if I didn't make sales, I didn't have a job very long. Uh, there was a lot of training confusion. They talked about building your funnel. They used this word funnel. I didn't know what that meant. They had acronyms for success. They taught us how to use these computer systems to things like inspect bills and trends and usage and find opportunities. I worked with a phone. So I, I wasn't in a sprint store. I worked with business owners. And so I really had to know my stuff before I even spoke to them and able to seek out an opportunity. And I figured it out as I went. But here's the thing. I was a salesman the moment they said, you got the job right? I became a salesman at that very moment, but the reality is I was becoming a salesman every day I went to work. I was getting better at it. I wasn't much of a salesman when I started, even though they slapped that label on me. I didn't know what in the world I was getting into. I'd never done it before, but each and every day I was training and training, not just in the training room. I mean, when I was with the customer, I was training on the job. You may see the parallel I'm already making. Is that what we're doing in the church if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that he died and rose again to punish sin and the grave, you are a disciple of Jesus. Praise God. But you are daily being made into a disciple. We are not in the business of making converts. Jesus never said that. We're in the business of making disciples. Making disciples is more than making converts. We aren't called to get people saved, then move on to the next unsaved person, leaving spiritually infant converts, pray to the world and to the evil one. We're called to make disciples, which is an ongoing effort and the daily mission to each individual, a disciple and a disciple maker. That's who you are. I'm not a pastor. You're still a disciple maker. Every individual that makes up the body of Christ, young and old, you are a disciple and you are called to be a disciple maker a trainer. That's a core commitment because the last command of Jesus must be the first priority of his church. That's what we're going to see in Matthew 28 today. So let's look at it together. Matthew 28, we're going to look at three verses, but I got a lot to say about them. Three verses starting in verse 18. Chapter 28, verse 18 says this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's not a lot, 
and yet it's a lot. The context of our passage today is that Jesus has been the substitute for humanity. We walked through the entire book of John recently, and so I'm not going to rehash all those events, although they're the glue that holds all of it together. Jesus has been obedient to the point of death, even death on a criminal's cross, and he wasn't a criminal, but he became something that he wasn't, so that you and I could become something that we aren't. I heard that yesterday from a pastor. I thought that's a wonderful explanation of the gospel. Simple. He became something that he wasn't, sin, so that we could become something we aren't, perfect, saints. And that's already happened. Jesus has been wonderfully resurrected. He's died to ransom the sinner, rose to conquer death's power, that we too would be resurrected. And now he's instructed his disciples to meet him on a mountain where he would give them their instruction, their commission as his followers. This passage is known as the Great Commission. And this Great Commission is not just a great evangelism commission. It is a great discipleship commission. But... Before we can speak on the commission, <clears throat> which is our mission, we have to speak on the authority of the one who is giving it. What I mean by that is that the source of a statement changes the way that we view the statement. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes, and I'll tell you who said them. The source matters, though, right? This quote is, when you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot in it and hang on. It's a great quote, right? That was said by Franklin D. Roosevelt. He's one chaired, called by many one of the greatest presidents that this nation has ever seen. 32nd president in the United States. He said, when you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. How can a guy like him say that? Because he was a president through the Great Depression. He got us through horrible world wars, or World War II especially, and uh, he'd been through it. When you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. And listen, when you hear the source of that quote, that matters, right? Another one is, the circumstances of one's birth are irrelevant. It is what you do with the gift of life that determines who you are. You may hear that and say, oh, that's a good one. Is that Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or Gandhi, the Dalai Lama? Who said that? You hear that? Circumstances of one's birth are irrelevant. It's what you do with the gift of life that determines who you are. You want to tell you who said that? A Pokemon. It's not a joke. A real a Pokemon said that in a movie once, and I read that and was like, that's actually pretty solid, right? The source of the quote matters. And when you hear one from by Franklin D. Roosevelt, you're like, wow, he'd been through it. When you hear one from a Pokemon, you think, what did I just hear again? But the quote that we hear from Jesus matters, and it matters more greatly because of the authority of the one who gives the commission. Verse 18 sets the stage and says, And Jesus came and said to them, How much authority? All authority in heaven and on earth that covers everybody y'all has been given to me he says you see jesus grounds his instruction that he's about to give with the authority upon which he can give it you ever been to a live sporting event you got a lot of people giving instructions you know what they're called those ignorant fans they're shouting at the players stop pass the ball shoot the ball pass the ball again Listen to me. I know everything. I have authority over— You don't have nothing, right? The fans are idiots, and that's why the players don't listen to them. If you're the fan, then I got bad news for you. You don't have the authority to give the instruction, and it's not going to stop you from yelling at the TV even. I realize that. But there is only one person whose voice the player, the athlete, yields to. Who is it? The coach. It's the coach. Why? Because the coach has authority, and his voice matters. And by the way, if the player doesn't do as the coach says, guess what happens? Player don't play. 
Because the ultimate authority falls to not the player, but to the coach. When he commands, they give their follow, or they don't play. Authority is the right to a controlling voice. That's what authority is. It's the right to a controlling voice. And Jesus's authority is ultimate. That's why it says all authority has been given to me. Every bit of it. He has the right to a controlling voice over all creatures, man, woman, child, animals, the seas, all of it. He has authority. Colossians 2, 9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means all the godness, it's in Jesus. Hebrews 1, 3 partially says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. That's a lot by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, that's authority, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, they're all underneath him. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You know what that word means? It means first, authority. And he's proven his authority in his life and ministry, hasn't he? When Jesus walked on this earth, he didn't just do the things that you and I did. He did amazing things. His authority and his power, but his authority is the reason that bodies listen to him. When he told legs that didn't work that they, know they work now, guess what happens? People got up and started walking. When he told eyes that did not see that they see now, you know what happened? They started seeing because the creation submitted to its authority, Jesus the Christ. It's why he could turn a cistern of water to wine and it obey him. It's why he could tell an entire stormy sea of water to hush, and it fell silent. It's why he could forgive sins. In fact, the onlookers, when Jesus healed a lame man and said, now go and sin no more, your sins are forgiven. In Mark chapter 2, verse 7, the religious leaders looked on, and they were like, only God has the authority to forgive sins. Who's this guy? He was God, and he had ultimate authority to do such things as that. It's also why he could tell the grave that it had no power, authority. So Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says, therefore, <clears throat> God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow to its authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Jesus opens his instruction with verse 18, speaking on the grounds upon which he can give such instruction. That's that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm going to read verses 19 and 20, make a couple of observations, and then we're going to get to what I'm going to put on the screen, the notes, okay? But first, let's look at these last two verses, and then we'll unpack it together, all right? Verses 19 and 20 then say, here's the commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, he says. Sometimes I use uh, English terms, and I'm going to use a couple of those. In fact, one of them is in my title, participle. But there's a couple of different types of verbs that we see in our passage today. And I know that's, maybe that's boring talk, but it matters as to how we interpret our text today. We have imperatives, or really just one imperative, and then we have three participles, which are going to be the things that you'll write down in a few moments. There's one imperative, though. An imperative is a command. The participles would then be the words, the verbs that modify that first initial command, the imperative. 
So it may sound like gibberish, but an imperative would be saying, clean the bathroom. That's an imperative. It's a command, like do it. Clean would be the imperative verb. Clean the bathroom. Now, a participle, two of them, if you said, I was scrubbing and sweating while I cleaned the bathroom. You see, the imperative was clean the bathroom. But the modifying verbs of that one verb are scrubbing and sweating, right? That's the difference between an imperative and a participle. So in our passage, we see one imperative. It's very clear. And what is it? Make disciples. That's the imperative. Yeah, you'll say go. That's actually one of the participles. We'll get there. But the imperative is make disciples. Now that's the command. We see a lot of modifiers that Jesus is going to throw in there. But Jesus' last instruction, as I said, must be our first priority. Make disciples. But let's be honest. The great commission has become the great omission. You don't make carpenters by giving them a hammer and getting them on your payroll. You don't make accountants by giving them a calculator. You don't make basketball players by giving them a pair of sneakers and a basketball. You train them. You train them. You teach them and you show them. Disciples are trained and being trained. Disciples are not just saved people. They are disciples being molded into the image of their master. And disciple making is the Christian main course, not an optional elective. It is the main object, our commission. The imperative is make disciples. Now we're going to look at the participles that modify that imperative, that command. In other words, they're going to tell us how to go do that. And there's three of them. Our aim in this core commitment and these three participles that we'll look at is both via output and input. What I mean by that is that each one of these that we're going to look at, it has an element to it where we're supposed to go do it. That's the great commission to go and do it, right? But also there's a component to it that we are recipients of it. So when Jesus gives these instructions, we're not just the ones that go and take that mission. We're also recipients. We're disciples, are we not? Are we not? As a disciple of Jesus, there are participles and modifiers of your discipleship that's important. That you're not just pouring out. That's important. But there's also a component that happens in here that we got to be part of. The first one that we're going to look at is the word baptizing. These participles are all going to share something in common. Um, or most of, two of them. One of, the, one of them doesn't have it in the English translation, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's, uh, they end in I-N-G. Participles often end in I-N-G. And so baptizing is one of them that we see in the English translation. Now, I say baptizing and being baptized. And the reason I say that for our first one is, again, there's an external component to that. There's output. We're baptizing them. But also that <clears throat> we, internally, we are being baptized. It's not just for everybody else, in other words for us as disciples of Jesus. We should be baptized people. Baptism baptism is not just being dunked into water. It is obedience in faith. It's meant to be an early, perhaps even the first sign of obedience. Listen, I'm going to say this very clearly. There was simply no conceivable way to the earliest disciples that there could possibly be a follower of Jesus who was not soon thereafter a baptized person. No conceivable way. That was not a thing. To them, they were right there one after the other. You're a believer? Let's line up the baptism. In fact, we saw it with the Ethiopian eunuch that in the passage Chris read just a moment ago. 
You're in Christ? Great. Hey, there's some water. Let's go do this thing. Now, there is some nuance to that. We talk about baptismal counseling and wanting to understand the gospel, and that's really important. But the point is, baptism should happen soon if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're still delaying, well, we're going to talk about that. Why? <clears throat> because baptism makes tangible what is intangible. Baptism makes tangible, if you can feel it, you can feel water, what is intangible. You may not feel necessarily the Spirit inside of you, right? makes tangible what is intangible. Disciples are not just made, they are marked. It is our physical declaration of commitment to Christ and his cause. It's physical, a marker. Jesus wanted a physical experience to couple with a spiritual experience. Just because baptism doesn't save you, and it doesn't, we say that, there's nothing magical about the water. It is a sign of something important, but it isn't what saves you. But listen, just because baptism doesn't save you doesn't mean baptism is unimportant or trivial or even optional. If you claim to have followed Christ, but you lack baptism, you aren't just lacking an optional symbol. You're telling Jesus that you want what he has to offer but you don't want to mark yourself as belonging to him. It's as clear as that. And you may not want to hear that. I'm, I understand that. But you must hear the hard things sometimes. And I'm going to add to that. The temptation maybe when you hear that is to, to dread baptism. Can I just tell you something? Baptism is such a joy. I've never baptized one person that did not come out of those waters overwhelming with joy. They may have gone into them overwhelmed by anxiety and nervousness and stress, but they always come out the same, celebrating, thankful that they did it. Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. We say that whenever we baptize here at Fellowship. Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. The transformation's already happened, but baptism outwardly demonstrates a physical picture of the gospel. That's why Romans 6.3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's Paul's way of saying we're baptized into the gospel. The amazing thing wasn't the water. The amazing thing was what happened on the inside of us is that we are identifying, marking ourselves as being buried with Christ and resurrected. That's the, that's the metaphor, right? Put under and brought out. We've been resurrected with Christ, and that's a physical indicator of that. There's absolutely no shame and no embarrassment attached to going into the burial waters of baptism. And so if that's you, let me just stop for just a second. If that's you, if you've been putting that off and if you've hidden that, by the way, my wife is not here, and I think she'd be okay with me saying this. She made a profession of faith as a young girl, and she was not baptized until we started dating. 22, maybe? 21? And the reason why is because she said, it's not what saves you. Talked herself out of it, knowing that that wasn't the right logic to have. But eventually, God rattled her cage. You know how he did that? She told me, confessed that to me, and I just said, okay, so let's just do it. And she did. And so I say this to say, if that's you today, 
And you've buried that, and now it's with each month and week and year that goes by, you feel more ashamed of that. Not, it's so late. I'm not a kid anymore. It's not too late to do that. Today is the right day to decide to do that. Today's the right day to say it's time to do that. And I'll just say one more thing on that course of action, and that is don't make it more complicated than it has to be. Your anxiety and your stress, they don't matter. Because when you come out of the waters, they will be forgotten. And you will have an eternity of obedience to celebrate. <clears throat> and if you're internally wrestling with that, just know that God is putting that conflict in there for a reason. Let's make it happen. Come talk to me about that. After the service or whenever, let's do it. The second participle that we see is teaching. Teaching, again, that's the output. The input would be and being taught. <clears throat> teaching and being taught. I'm not sure of another facet of life that we expect someone to become an expert at something just by figuring it out. I don't know of another facet of life that's like that. You don't, <laughs> you don't throw a kid in a pool and say, okay, swim, kid. You don't do that, right? We teach them. I hope that you teach them. That's pretty sketchy parenting if that's what you do. That's why they're swim instructors. It's sports. We don't just say, here's a ball. Go figure it out. There are coaches and trainers. In school, we have teachers. Even more hands-on, we have tutors. Because we don't just throw them to the wolves and expect them to figure it out. They must be taught. In work, you have trainers. See, the reason I say that is that even the world has figured out the model that discipleship works. Why should the church be any different? It's Jesus' model. He knew that the model worked. He chose it for the church, teaching the word applied to real life. Guys, me-centered, feel-good worship will draw crowds. It won't make disciples. Therapeutic, sin-omitting, feel-good preaching will draw crowds. It will not make disciples. Programs centered around inflatable games and ice cream will definitely draw crowds. It will not make disciples. We must make disciples, fellowship. You know what will make disciples? The participle here, teaching them. Notice it doesn't just say teaching them. It says to observe. Your translation may say to obey, synonymous. To go and do it. Teaching them, not just to know a bunch of stuff, but teaching them what it means to live in light of these things that we learn so that we may never be the same, but may walk in the image of our Creator. Teaching them to obey, to observe. Know, grow, go. Know, grow, go. To know God, to grow in godliness, and to go in the name of our God. Know, grow, go. That is what it means to be teaching and be being taught. Know, grow, go. And man, I can't help but think about young people when I think about the great omission. We don't just want to see young people making professions of faith. <clears throat> we want to train up young leaders, mature followers of Christ that are anchored in the truth and anchored deeply in the truth because there are storms coming as young adults, are there not? In 2017, it's a statistic uh, that the Mississippi Baptist Convention gave to me. 2017, 39% of Mississippians identified 
as actively involved in a religious community. That's five years ago, 2017, 39%. <clears throat> Today, that number has fallen from 39% to 25%. 14% in five years. The change from like 1930, according to a Gallup poll, to 2000 was like 1%. 1% in 70 years, and suddenly in the last five, 14% plummeting of people involved in the church. <clears throat> it isn't a hopeful trend. Parents, teaching them is your mission. To observe is your mission. Teach your children that God's word, the Bible, this book that, from which we extract is more than Veggie Tales stories and VBS songs. It's more than that. It is the Word of God. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for training, hear that one, for reproof, for correction, and for, or for teaching, for training is the last part, in righteousness. You know what God didn't say? He never said church, church programs were the power of God to save. He told us the gospel was the power of God to save, Romans 1.16. God never said the youth group would perfectly light the way. He did say that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, Psalm 119, verse 105. Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Parents, your kids don't need you to just ensure that they are here most Sundays and Wednesdays, betting everything on those hours a week, then turning them over to the influence of TikTok, the cesspool they have dumped into them by their peers. They need you to train them in righteousness. I'll say it another way. <clears throat> the hub of your children's discipleship is not the church. It is your home. Sam Riley, our youth pastor, he gets them maybe two hours a week. You get them the other, do the math. Who do you think is the main disciple maker? Awana, we get them an hour a week during the school year. You get them the rest of the time. And the world gets them some of that time. Who do you think is the primary disciple maker? The hub of your children's discipleship is not this building. It is your home. And you're the main teachers. That means that your mission field begins <clears throat> not when your feet hit the pavement, but when your feet first hit your bedroom floor. Dads, that means you need to step up. I am so tired of the male contribution in the home being a hard worker. That's not enough. Be a dad who trains his kids in righteousness. It's a good thing to work hard. It's a better thing to disciple your children. And don't risk the better thing for a good thing. I'm glad that you guys work hard but it will mean infinitely more to your children, not just in this life where you give them a good life with the money on the table. 
I'm talking about the next life where you hope that they will spend time with you in glory. More importantly, time with their Savior in glory. Dads, step up to the plate because it is zipping past you and you're letting the world disciple your kids and they are, they're dying. I know that's sobering and that's a real bummer, but that is the truth. And if you refuse to disciple your kids, the world will be glad to disciple them for you. Stay-at-home moms, I know that it's easy to overlook this, but the few early years that your kids give you the real estate of prime influence over their lives is perhaps the most vital mission that God will ever give you. Think about that. That might be the most vital mission that God ever gives you. I know that you're tired. I live with one of them. I know it's exhausting, but please don't waste it. It is worth it. The meals are exhausting. There has to be time to point them to Jesus. There has to. Parents of teenagers, I'm not there yet. Praise the Lord for that. I got a feeling it's going to get worse than when I'm there. Parents of teenagers, the school is a minefield of hard-hitting discouragement and hurt, but we live in a day and age when they bring that pit of despair home in their pockets. That's your mission field. Be a source of life, listening, encouragement, affection for those teenagers. Know when to set boundaries, not as a tyrant, but as a parent. And know that that phone that you pay for is yours. It's not theirs. Sam and I were discussing that yesterday, that there will be days that you have to be treated like the villain today so that in 10 years they realize that you were their protector when they didn't want one. That is the truth, man. And I'm not looking forward to that. But I'm going to have to tell myself the same thing when that day comes. Teach them to obey. And I want to suggest one more thing along those lines, and we're going to get to you guys. And you got there yet. I'm talking about the kids right now. You got to show them. Because they can know the difference between you just saying this is the way it's supposed to be and you showing them that you're the one that's also walking with Jesus. Show them. You must show them. If you're only teaching them and not showing them, they will see that it's not worth it and they won't follow it either. They're smart enough to figure that out. Some of you, and before I move on, let me just say this. We just got in singing a song, Hosanna. It talks about, I forget the word exactly, heal our hearts is the way that that line starts. Heal our hearts. I got a feeling that after hearing all those things, you feel broken. I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible father. I've really dropped the ball as a mom. I yell at my kids more than I praise my kids. If that's you, this is a word that heals your hearts, not breaks them. Oh, it breaks them, but it mends them. Guys, the gospel is restful, not burdensome. And so the good news of the gospel is that you will fail at parenting, church. But your merit as a parent is not what earns you glory at the end of your life. It is the merit purchased for you at Calvary. You're in good company when it comes to dropping the ball. We come for healed hearts, but we must be broken. Some of you guys 
have been, uh, talking about showing them, but showing them. Some of you have been converted. You're in Christ. You're a disciple of Jesus, but you have settled for salvation. When God has called you yourself to be trained in righteousness. You, you skip out on Sunday school. You don't do any small groups whenever we have those. You don't even participate in worship. You don't sing the songs. You don't take notes in the sermons, and then you expect to be trained. That's, that's stupid. That's, that's just stupid. It, that equation doesn't make any sense. You must be trained in order to that means you got to be willing to be trained. You ever try to train someone that doesn't want to be trained? It's miserable, and they do not learn. You have to come willing to be trained. You know, baseball begins with the chaos of t-ball. You ever seen t-ball happen? It's chaos. It begins with the chaos of t-ball, but in the hands of the trained, it is poetry in motion in the form of a major league four-six-three double play, and it looks pretty. Painting begins with messy toddler's fingers and a blotch of mixed color that hopefully makes it on a piece of paper. But in the hands of the trained, it is da Vinci's Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. It's Van Gogh's The Starry Night. Training matters. And some of you grown-ups are still playing t-ball. You're still finger-painting. It's time to grow up and be trained. And discipline yourself so that then you can discipline your children to grow up and be trained. But if you ain't doing it, chances are they're not going to buy it. And as you grow, <clears throat> so shall your love for him. First Peter 2, 2 and 3, it's a great verse. It says, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that it may be grown that it may grow up into salvation. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know what that means? It means when a baby has milk, they want more milk whenever it's time to eat again. They've tasted it. It's pure, it's good. I'm going to come back and have more of that. When you taste a good thing, you aren't repulsed by it. You long for more of it and you love it. Had a Krispy Kreme donut yesterday. Say no more, church. Tasted a good thing and I had to fight myself from just eating the whole box. Because when you taste a good thing, you're not repulsed by that. You want more of that. But the implicit assumption in that verse, in, second, in First Peter, that you see right behind me, the implicit assumption of Peter is that the infant will grow up. I'll just say it like this. Every single person in this room, me included, needs someone in their lives more mature in Christ than they are that isn't their spouse that is discipling and investing in them. Call it a coffee date. Call it living room conversation. Call it lunch every couple of weeks. You need to be invested in by someone that is further along in their walk with Jesus than you are. It's training. It's discipleship. And it's not my idea. It's Jesus' model. You need someone more mature that's investing in you. But every single person in this room, me included, needs someone in their lives less mature in Christ than they are that isn't their spouse, that they are discipling, that they are investing in, and the machine just rolls and rolls. It's been doing it for a couple thousand years. Teaching, being taught. The third participle is one that we actually skipped over. It's the first one that he mentions. But I want to close with it. It's going now you look at it and you see it says go therefore. There's no ing on that one. But in the Greek, the original language, it's, it's a Greek participle. Even though it's translated as go, the English does not well reflect the tense of the verb. It's an orist participle, which is just 
grammar jargon, it means that it would be better understood going or having gone, make disciples. Having gone, make disciples. As you're going, make disciples. As you're on your way, it's not saying go all the way to, to Africa, go all the way to China. That's certainly not off the table. But this is as you're going, every single day on your way to work, on your way to the kitchen, make disciples. Going, make disciples. In other words, there is no of the latter without the former. Make disciples, you must be going. So Romans 10, 14, a verse that you may know says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And the Apostle Paul was not talking about senior pastors. He was, and all of us. We are all called to be preaching the gospel. I don't mean vocationally. I mean in your lifestyle, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. You may say, I don't know. I'm not much of a teacher. Listen, God used uneducated fishermen. They're equipping the Spirit of God. They're training. He said simply, just go tell the truth about what you've seen me do. Just go tell the truth. You got to be equipped to do that? Yep, Spirit of God. You got to be trained to do that? Not really. It's your experience. Have you been made new by Jesus? Go tell people about that. You don't have to go to some seminar or some class to learn to do that. Do you believe the gospel? You confess Jesus is Lord, believe that God raised him from the dead? Yep. Go tell them about that. Tell them about your experience. Tell people about that. That's their training. It means that we make the gospel and the God who accomplished it our number one passion in life. <clears throat> Guys, needless to say, you shouldn't have greater love for sports, politics, your favorite shows, your significant other, your kids, your clothes, than you have for the gospel. You can quote your favorite team's roster, lyrics to hundreds of songs, lines from dozens of movies, but what about scripture? You can read thousands of words on your timeline per day, and you do, most of you. But what about God's word? Always cracks me up when someone says, I'm not much of a reader. They say that while they're scrolling their phone looking through their timeline. It's like, yeah, you are. You're just not much of a Bible reader. We can be great evangelists for our views on masks or on the current White House administration. We can be great evangelists on the real cause for this inflation that we're suffering under. But out about our Lord, are we great evangelists for him? As you are going, that's what that participle means. Go, going, having gone, means your life is a mission field church. Be willing to tell the truth about what you know about your God. That means it's as near as your neighbor, and it is as far as the ends of the earth. When was the last time that you spoke to a lost person about Jesus? When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you told them the truth about why you have hope? I'm going to set a goal, an individual aim and a church aim. The individual aim is this. Can you commit to one person that you will commit to pray for every day and to point to Jesus with the gospel, conversation, church invitation, 
whenever you see an opportunity. Can you commit to just one person that you can commit to praying every day for them and looking for opportunities to point them to Jesus? Can you commit to that as an individual aim? I say a church invitation, but listen, God didn't call us to bring the lost to church. He called us to bring Christ to the lost. And certainly the church is important. We're called to bring Christ to people. It's a good individual aim to just take one man and be zealous to reach that person prayerfully, conversationally. But there's also a church aim here. You can't miss it. It is the Great Commission after all. We're called to go on mission, church. And when I say mission, I do mean your neighbor's house, and I mean Meridian. I mean our community. I do mean the ends of the earth. And so I'm going to make a commitment to you as your pastor. You know, COVID really stomped on so much of the community outreach that we were able to do, didn't it? We couldn't get into nursing homes, couldn't get into hospitals, couldn't get into schools. But it's time to get back out there, man. I'm not saying COVID is a thing of the past. It is not a thing of the past. But our world in many ways has moved on from that. It's time to mobilize. And so my commitment to you is that we're going to look for opportunities to do that. I don't know when, I don't know how that's going to look, but my goal for the ends of the earth is next summer to go on a mission trip together. I don't have details about that. I got an idea about that, and I'm going to follow up on that. We have a missions and ministry committee that meets, a team of people that gets together and says, where are there opportunities? And we need to get together, and we need to meet and talk about that. And I'm going to commit to you as the, the leader of your church, the pastor, the shepherd, to take you, the sheep, and find opportunities that we can do that. Are you okay with that? We've got to be a going church fellowship. Otherwise, what are we really doing? We must be a going church for a coming Christ. Will we just be another church of the great omission, or will we be a church of the great commission? Baptizing, teaching, and going. You know, each of you, hopefully at this point, have heard a lot of things Maybe a lot of application that may hit home. Can you just do something for me and really for yourself? Don't let it just fly by as you quench the spirit and move on to the next thing. If when I was talking about baptism, you felt a conflict and a stirring in you because you know it's time, will you stop feeding into the great omission in your life? and yield to the Great Commission. Dads and moms, students, when you hear me talking about not just the output of teaching, but the input, I need to be trained. I need to be training, especially my family. If that stirs you up, please don't quench the spirit. Make a commitment today. Have a conversation with your spouse today. Double down and say, that needs to be a new effort for us today. Step up to the plate. Stop playing t-ball and finger painting. It's time to step it up. And if I talk about that individual, and maybe a lot of you guys already had the person in mind, I think you do. As we close today, and you're spending some time with the Lord, make a commitment to Him. I'll put an image on the screen behind me of a big boat. It's the SS United States. You may have heard of this boat. 
It's inspired by Allied Forces assets in World War II. It was commissioned in 1940. It was built in 1951, 11 years later. It cost $79.4 million um, then. It's a lot more now. That number, 79.4 million, is equivalent to 829 million in 2021. So maybe a little more today. The purpose of the SS United States was transatlantic troop transport. We had just come on the heels of World War II and needed to have an opportunity, a way to have big numbers of troops be transported quickly, and it held up to 15,000 of them. Uh, but to, to transport them, not just to transport them, but to transport them quickly, and so they put it to the test. It broke a lot of records and still holds a lot of records for speedy transatlantic travel for the purpose of troop transport. <clears throat> and yet it never transported mobilized troops. Instead, it was used as a luxury liner for rich people to enjoy the ride. Walt Disney was one of them. I think uh, Marilyn Monroe was another one of them. The ship has since changed owners many times. It's been decommissioned. It now sits at Pier 82 on the Delaware River in Philadelphia, PA, where the SS United States is a tourist consumer attraction. Guys, the church was created to be a troop mobilizer. But far too often has it become a consumer attraction. We go into the church instead of going out from the church. Got that from H.B. Charles, a wonderful pastor. I thought that was a really good analogy for what we're talking about today. Fellowship, we are the engine that sends believers into a dying world, full of people, torn by sin, needing the rescue of the Savior who has deployed us into action. It's time to evaluate yourself. Are you part of the output? Are you part of the input? 